The Korean War was probably inevitable, yet also unthinkable to many. It had been only five years since the United States ended World War II in the Pacific. The U.S., by defeating the Japanese, had also liberated the Korean Peninsula. Surely, Korea would at long last be free and independent and prosper. But ironically, the defeat of Korea's Japanese oppressive rulers made Korea an orphan nation. It needed a parent. It needed care and money and guidance to get on its feet. But, and this is critical to understanding why we are facing today's nuclear standoff, the U.S., in the wake of World War II, did not want sole custody of the Korean Peninsula. American forces were gradually being sent home. The U.S. public opinion was focused instead on post-war recovery at home and the rebuilding of a devastated Europe. So U.S. officials sort of sublet the Korean problem to an eager Soviet Union and split the country into two zones of responsibility. During those five years between 1945 and 1950, the Soviets slowly but surely helped to build a communist state in the north. The U.S. backed a Western-style democracy in the south. Two bitterly opposed nations and Cold War proxy rivals. Yet when the North Koreans invaded South Korea on June 25, 1950, the U.S. government was unprepared and surprised. Dean Rusk who later became Secretary of State for Presidents John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, was then Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs when the war began. To put it as a job description, Korea was his patch. His recollections are a rare first-hand account of how and why the communist regime in the North is still in power as President Trump tries to further negotiate a nuclear weapons agreement. Here is Dean Russ's remarkable story in his own words. On the evening in which the invasion started, uh, my wife and I were having dinner at uh, Joel Sop's house. And present there were Justice Felix Frankfurter and uh, Frank Pace, Secretary of the Army, his wife. And during dinner, uh, a message came in to me from the State Department that the North Koreans, that we'd had a telegram in from our ambassador out there saying that the North Koreans were invading South Korea on a broad front. And so Frank Pace and I uh, left the dinner to go back to our offices to uh, see what was going on, to do what, had, what seemed to be necessary, and um, leaving the other guests there at the dinner to speculate rather wily on what, what was happening and why we had left. Rusk is speaking here into an audio tape recorder for his oral history which formed much of his book called As I Saw It. We are grateful for the use of the audio to the Richard B. Russell Library for Political Research and Studies at the University of Georgia. Rusk is speaking in the mid-1980s, some 30 years after the end of the Korean War. His recollections are remarkably candid and contain little of the usual caution used by diplomats. But keep in mind that Rusk had long since retired and seemed happy to speak freely. Dean Russ passed away in 1994. Note that he's being interviewed by one of his young academic associates, Thomas Schonenbaum, who would later become professor of law at the University of Washington in Seattle. You will occasionally hear his voice during the interview. I will, from time to time, 
inject some notes to help you know something about the people and issues that Rusk mentions. Before we return to the interview, you'll recall that Rusk mentioned that he was having dinner at the home of Joe Alsop. Alsop was an American journalist and syndicated newspaper columnist from the 1930s through the 1970s. When Russ says that he left dinner amid wild speculation on what had happened, you can well imagine that Joseph Alsop might have been choking on his dessert. Here again is Dean Rusk remembering those early hours after the North Korea attack. And I had the feeling, the belief, that whatever one does, the first obligation is to get it to the U.N. Security Council. Yeah. We got Ernest Gross, our deputy representative on the Security Council in New York, got waked him up that night and got him in touch with the U.N. Secretary General and, and uh, arranged for an emergency meeting of the Security Council. Now, when the North Korean forces went in there, then this seemed to be a direct challenge and threat to the entire concept of collective security. My generation of young people have been led into the catastrophe of World War II, which could have been prevented. And we came out of the war thinking that collective security was the key to the prevention of World War III. It was written very simply and strongly into Article I of the United Nations Charter and reinforced by certain security treaties. Now, it is true that we did not have a security treaty with Korea at that time, but, but that had been our, uh, our uh, area of occupation at mm -hmm. the end of the war. We had received the surrender of the Japanese forces in South Korea. We had, uh, we had condu conducted an, op a, uh, an occupation there for a period of about uh, four years, and uh, we felt that there was a very special United States interest and responsibility in what happened in, in South Korea. Further, in those days, the Korean Peninsula was looked upon as a dagger pointed at the heart of Japan. We were much concerned about what the impact on Japan would be if, uh, mm -hmm. if uh, the North Koreans got away with this. And so um, President Truman, uh, I think, was very clear about it. He, he made this basic decision over at the Blair House, where he was living at that time while they were remodeling the White House. When he got back from Independence, he called a meeting of the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, uh, Joint Chiefs, certain staff people, including myself, and he went right around the table uh, asking uh, each one. As I remember, he started with the junior people, working up to the senior people. I was, I was asked to come in. I did very briefly because Atchison was there and could speak. State Department, the Defense Department people felt that we simply had to do something to try to throw this thing back or we would very likely see that kind of chain of aggression which had produced World War II. That our ambassador out there, Mucho, uh, rendered a great service um, by uh, properly appreciating the situation immediately and informing Washington, whereas some others uh, were inclined to look upon this as just some more border incident. Mr. John Foster Dulles was in uh, Tokyo at that time. John Foster Dulles was a seasoned diplomat, politician, and political advisor. And he came back uh, after a few days, sort of shaking his head. The attack occurred on the Sunday, and it was not until the following Tuesday that MacArthur's headquarters accepted it as anything other than border incidents. MacArthur, of course, was the five-star General Douglas MacArthur, who had been in charge of America's forces in the Far East during World War II and was still in charge of U.S. forces when North Korea invaded the South. We'll hear more about General MacArthur later, but for now, 
Let's hear Dean Russ describe the incredible story of how the United States came to fight under the UN flag in Korea. It was agreed immediately that we'd call an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council. The meeting occurred on the on the Sunday. The Security Council passed a resolution uh, calling on uh, two calling on the two sides to stop the fighting and so forth. But that made no difference to the North Koreans. And then I think the following day they. Security Council passed a resolution um, um, asking members of the UN to give help to the Republic of Korea. That was a very important uh, resolution. Now, the Soviets were not in the Security Council at that moment. They had withdrawn earlier over the issue of the Chinese Sea. Now, this is really fascinating, the China Sea. Before we rejoin Dean Russ, what on earth does the China Sea dispute have to do with how the Korean War would unfold? A lot, as it turns out. It's also a major teaching moment in the history of Korea. Here's how that Cold War drama unfolded in the United Nations and helped to change Korean history. Months before the Korean War broke out, the United States and Soviet Union were going at it tooth and nail over the unrelated question of who should be recognized as the legitimate government of China. The so-called Two Chinas Dispute. The U.S. recognized the anti-communist nationalists who had governed China until the 1949 communist revolution drove them into exile on the island of Taiwan. The Soviets, naturally, wanted the new rulers, the communists under Mao Zedong, to have the U.N. stamp of approval. Joseph Stalin was so adamant that he had his U.N. ambassador boycott all Security Council meetings. So when the U.N. Security Council met to decide the policy on the North Korean invasion of the South, Stalin will let Dean Rusk tell you. And somewhat to our surprise, the Soviet ambassador did not come back into the Security Council so that he could veto those resolutions on Korea. So then in a sense, the U.N. flag that flew over the, resist, the, the, attempt, the, uh, the Allied effort in Korea was an accident. I, uh, many years later, uh, spoke to a high-ranking um, Soviet official um, about why it was that their ambassador, even without instructions, did not go back into the Security Council to exercise the veto. And the next time I saw this man, he, he said he had looked it up and found that uh, Joseph Stalin personally had telephoned his ambassador to the United Nations and told him not to return to the Security Council that the Chinese question was apparently more important to Stalin than uh, whatever might happen in the Security Council about Korea. Besides, the UN flag meant nothing to the North Korean leader. Here's Professor Charles Armstrong, a Korean expert at Columbia University. Kim Il-sung had gone to Stalin before the war and told him that defeating South Korea would be a, a, a very easy task to accomplish, that they could take over all of the Korean Peninsula in a matter of weeks. And at the beginning, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the North Korean invasion, it seemed he was absolutely right. The uh, capital of the South, Seoul, was taken in three days. The South Korean army retreated. The South Korean government fell apart. Dean Rusk remembers it well. At the beginning, President's, uh, President Truman's first decision was to employ the um, U.S. Air Force to try to intercept some of these North Koreans coming down the trail. Um, but that didn't, that didn't work, and it soon became apparent that um, uh, ground forces would be needed. I remember um, 
that was a column of about uh, 80 tanks coming down the, coming from North Korea down towards Seoul, the capital of South Korea. And uh, one high-ranking Air Force officer said, turn the Air Force loose and we'll stop those tanks. Well, I think we did, and I think they got one of them. I think the rest of them rolled into Seoul. MacArthur um, soon appreciated that um, you couldn't stop it just with air and naval action, that you'd have to put some ground troops in. And so on about the third day, President Truman uh, authorized the intrusion of ground forces uh, onto the Korean Peninsula. And so we uh, sent us some poor devils who had been on garrison duty in Japan without hard field training and that sort of thing. Just simply quickly moved them over, flew them over, and put them onto the battlefield. But uh, our armed forces were in very pitiful shape at that time. Uh, we had demobilized almost completely after World War II, and so uh, we were very short-handed, not only in personnel, but in, uh, in war material. You see, just after the war, there was a scramble to bring all of our troops home, and almost most of those with any kind of war experience had been replaced by uh, young, uh, beardless, new draftees. And our defense budget, uh, just after the war, came down so low that we didn't even have the money to bring home any significant quantity of the vast war supplies that we had distributed all over the world during World War II. And so we were, we were simply short of arms as well as short of people. You see, the, the, the South Korean forces uh, were, had not completed their training and equipment cycle at the time of the attack. Um, a decision had been made to build up the uh, South Korean uh, forces uh, significantly because of the withdrawal of the last regimental combat team in 1949. Um, but they were going through uh, individual and company and maybe battalion training, but they had not reached the stage of uh, regimental or division training, nor did they have such things as divisional artillery and things of that sort. So they were very lightly equipped at the time of the outbreak of the, of the Korean War. So any idea that some revisionist historians have that somehow the South the South attacked the North with just utter nonsense. Contrast that with Professor Armstrong's description of the North Korean forces. The Korean People's Army, which had uh, more than 200 tanks, uh, was well equipped. They were old World War II vintage weapons, but certainly uh, superior uh, in, in number and uh, efficiency to what the South had. Uh, and a, a large corps of battle-hardened veterans of the Chinese Civil War which had involved uh, many, many ethnic Koreans in China, uh, particularly those uh, affiliated with the communist side. So um, it, it looked like Kim's plan was coming true, that he was a strategic genius and that he would win all of the Korean Peninsula. But as Dean Rusk recalls, there was a totally unexpected development. Then a very fortunate thing occurred from my from point of view. When the American forces, when the relative handful of American forces turned up on the battlefield. The North Koreans halted for a period of about 10 days. Presumably, I suppose, to go back to Pyongyang and Moscow, maybe Peking, to mm -hmm. consult about the meaning of this and what they should do about it. Well, during that pause, it became possible for us to uh, reinforce further. If the North Koreans had just kept coming, 
they would have occupied the entire peninsula. We could not have gotten enough over there in time to stop the onslaught. In other words, had someone on the North Korean side been just a bit more confident, or a little less afraid of forging ahead without a rubber stamp from headquarters, all of Korea might have now belonged solely to the regime of Kim Jong-un, the dictator with whom President Trump has been dealing. To put it another way, there might have been no South Korean nation to oppose Kim's nuclear threat. There's no public explanation, by the way, as to what may have happened to the North Korean official who ordered that temporary halt in the attack against the South. But wait, there's more. More virtually unknown behind-the-scenes dramas that helped shape today's Korean crisis, and in one case, helped shape another major global conflict the U.S. is also dealing with today. For example, when North Korea attacked, Washington went on full alert for a possible wider attack by the Soviet Union or China or both. Dean Rusk. Now, we, we, when, when the North Koreans first attacked, we did not know immediately what else might be involved, whether this was simply the opening shots in a much broader communist offensive in Asia. And uh, so we uh, took certain other steps uh, trying to deter the idea of expanding the Korean conflict into other parts of Asia. President Truman inserted this seventh fleet between Taiwan and the mainland and said there would be no operations uh, back and forth between those two. And because uh, we didn't know whether the Korean attack meant that the Chinese was about to attack Taiwan. Yeah. And we also uh, stepped up substantially the assistance we were giving to the French in Indochina. Um, because we didn't know whether the Chinese might be thinking about moving south, you see. Uh, but um, fortunately, uh, for whatever reason, uh, that, um, that did not occur. The, the intrusion of the 7th Fleet between the mainland and Taiwan was something of a bluff. In one sense, we could count thousands and thousands of wooden junks along the coast of China there within reach of Taiwan. And uh, we took one of these wooden junks out to sea and um, shot at it to see what it would take to sink one of these darn things. And it's a heck of a problem to sink a wooden junk. We did not have in the 7th Fleet at that time one shell for each junk. And uh, if the, if the no. Chinese had uh, launched um, several thousand of those junks simultaneously at dusk some afternoon and turned up the next morning on the coast of Taiwan. That would have been a heck of a situation. A heck of a situation, he says. I don't know whether some of today's Chinese leaders might be listening to this report. Are they hearing this for the first time? Or do they already know about that lost chance to capture Taiwan and basically wipe out the pro-Western Chinese regime that remains a thorn in their side? It was a heck of a missed opportunity for mainland China. Today, U.S. warships still patrol those waters to protect the pro-West Taiwan amid a continuing tense standoff. And according to Dean Rusk, who knew that deadly secret, all it would have taken to change the course of U.S.-Chinese history was a fleet of wooden fishing boats. Meanwhile, as the Korean War progressed, so did North Korean forces. At one point, they had pushed the U.S.-led U.N. forces into a small southeast corner of the country called the Pusan Perimeter. It might well have been called the Pusan Coffin, 
things look so bleak. The North was on the verge of victory, but some 140,000 American, South Korean, and British troops kept fighting. Meanwhile, Douglas MacArthur, who was the five-star hero of World War II in the Pacific, but who had also been caught off guard by the Korean War, came up with a plan. Some in Washington were skeptical and saw MacArthur's play as a risky Hail Mary, an American football term for throwing the ball high and long in hopes someone would catch it in the end zone for a touchdown. MacArthur launched his audacious amphibious landing at Inchon. It worked. Here's Professor Charles Armstrong. The famous Inchon landing uh, of September of 1950 cut off the North Koreans in the middle and from that point, the UN forces led by General MacArthur were able to very rapidly push the North Koreans back up the peninsula and then across the 38th parallel. I think that uh, MacArthur could have, without much difficulty, uh, held on to most of North Korea. There was discussion of, between uh, the US through intermediaries and uh, with the North Koreans to allow Kim to have a kind of rump North Korean state in the north central part of the peninsula. Uh, and that would have led to a very different history. We would have had a Republic of Korea, uh, a, a US allied Korea covering almost all of the Korean peninsula. Uh, and there was no reason for and no real uh, likelihood that North Korea could have uh, done anything about it. But what happened was uh, MacArthur made the era of moving all the way to the Chinese border despite being warned uh, explicitly not to do that. The Chinese intervened in late October uh, and um, the U.S. was pushed south. So Korea could have been unified twice. It could have been completely unified under the communists if the North Korean army had not made the strategic mistake of stopping, as they did. And it could have been uh, uh, unified under South Korea and the U.S. had MacArthur not made the strategic mistake of provoking the Chinese. As all of that was happening, Dean Rusk, who was at that time an advisor to President Truman and to the Secretary of State, saw the MacArthur move beyond the 38th parallel at a slightly different angle. Then there's another factor that one can speculate on, one can never know. But uh, when MacArthur moved north of the 38th parallel into North Korea, he broke up his forces into different tongues, if you like. Um, where the, in all that, that mountainous terrain, they were not in position to give each other any kind of mutual support. The Joint Chiefs had, had uh, raised a question about this deployment, but uh, too late to have affected MacArthur's handling of his forces. And so when the Chinese came in, they could get at these forces piecemeal. Had MacArthur moved north with his, with his forces intact, we might well have been at the narrow neck of North Korea right now. I don't know, who knows on this, something like that. Yep. The, the other side might not have settled on the basis of that status quo yep. rather than the 38th parallel. But, um, so these things are mixed up with both tactical and political ramifications. North Korea and the U.S.-led U.N. forces fought for three years and basically stopped on July 27, 1953, where they started three years earlier, pretty much close to the 38th parallel. No war should be reported without noting the human toll. The numbers vary depending upon the source of the data. 36,000 American soldiers killed, some 100,000 more wounded. The South Korean casualties, 
217,000 troops killed or missing, 429,000 troops wounded, South Korean civilians killed or missing, 1 million. North Korean casualties, 406,000 soldiers killed or missing, 1.5 million soldiers wounded, 600,000 civilians killed or missing. China, 600,000 soldiers killed or missing, 716,000 soldiers wounded. UN forces other than American, 3,000 killed, 11,000 wounded. A war that ended where it began, except for these two numbers. Total wounded, 2,759,000. Total lives lost, 2,862,000. A war that might never have happened if the United States had taken complete and sole responsibility for all of Korea after liberating it from Japan in World War II. A war that helped set the stage for the rise of the tiny nation of North Korea to a nuclear power so dangerous that the President of the United States flies halfway around the world twice so far to bargain for peace. My thanks once again to Professor Charles Armstrong for his insights and for his trusted guidance off mic on matters of history. I also want to thank the Richard B. Russell Library for Political Research and Studies at the University of Georgia. And thanks to Secretary of State Dean Rusk. If you're up there listening somewhere, I wish I could have interviewed you in person. My heartfelt thanks. I'll be posting more episodes this week as news breaks, so please subscribe and please share with anyone you think might enjoy an off-the-beaten-path Korean story. I'm Mike Lee. Bye for now.